Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, live from New York, I'm Zane Asher. This is First Move, and here is your need to know. Almost 900,000 Americans file first-time jobless claims. The number falls below a million, though, for the first time in three weeks. And Facebook banned social media giant to block new political ads in the week before the U.S. election. And pipeline pressure. Angela Merkel faces calls to ditch a controversial national gas pipeline after Russian poisoning. It is Thursday. Let's make a move. All right, welcome to First Move. I'm Zane Asher, filling in once again for my colleague Julia Chatterley. It is another busy day for investors this Thursday. Uh, important new jobs numbers have just been released about half an hour or so ago. An additional 881,000 people filed for first-time jobless claims in the, in the U.S. last week. A greater drop than expected. The numbers are below 1 million for the first time in three weeks. That said, the total number of people still collecting benefits have risen to more than 29 million. It has been one month now since these jobless Americans actually lost their $600 a week in enhanced benefits. And Congress is still far, far apart on a deal to restore that aid. As investors inspect the data, U.S. futures, let's see here, are pointing to a mostly lower start. You see red arrows across your screen uh, on Thursday's session. Investors taking a bit of a breather today after two straight days of solid gains. The major averages all rallied on Wednesday with the Dow and the S&P 500 rising 1.5%. The Dow is less than 2% away from record highs, the S&P 500. And the Nasdaq closed at new records. European stocks are solidly higher as well today as the euro eases from recent gains. French stocks are in the lead after the government there announced an almost $120 billion stimulus package. Asian stocks were mixed with investors eyeing fresh US-China tensions and India's banning of more than 100 Chinese mobile apps. More on that in a moment. Let's begin with our drivers with more on the jobs picture. Christine Romans joins us live now. So, Christine, let's talk about these uh, initial jobless claims coming in at 881,000. Just because of the the seasonally adjusted factor, is this really an apples-to-apples comparison compared to last week? Look, so basically the jobs damage is so deep, so severe and has lasted so long that the Labor Department is changing how it seasonally adjusts the data. I mean, the way it was running these numbers was fine in a normal economy, but this is not a normal economy and not a normal job job market. So 881,000, that's below a million. We like to see that. But again, it's a a change in how uh, the Labor Department conducts, uh, conducts the data. Also, for some perspective here. The last time, you know, we these numbers are unprecedented still over and over again. I don't want to normalize just how big these numbers are, even when they are improving. I mean, in October of 1982, 695,000 people filed for the first time for unemployment claims. That was the record, the longstanding record. So we have every week, every week we uh, are are blowing away what would be historical uh, precedent. When you look at continuing claims, that fell a little bit. You want to see that. That's a number trending lower. Those are people who are getting state 
benefits a couple of weeks in a row. So it shows that they're still continuing to get claims. And the overall number of people in all programs, state programs, and then these special pandemic uh, programs for freelancers and part-timers, that number is 29 million. So just think of that for a minute. 29 million people in the biggest economy in the world are receiving some sort of a jobless benefit. So that just shows you how deep I think, Zane, the damage is uh, in the labor market. We know the Congressional Budget Office this week said that um, they don't expect the, the labor market to fully improve to get to pre-pandemic levels for a decade, looking at an average of 6.1% unemployment over the next decade. And we've even had more big company announcements of furloughs just in the past 24 hours, United Airlines, and we've heard from Ford, and we've heard from Amtrak. So there is still a job, coronavirus jobs crisis persists here in this country. And let's pivot slightly to U.S. debt, U.S. debt basically reaching its highest levels compared to the size of the economy since World War II. How worrying is that, Christine? It's a really big number, and it shows you the pandemic is like fighting a world war. I mean, it just shows you how serious uh, this is, that we've had to spend so much money, borrow so much money to fight the pandemic, to keep the American economy, uh, you know, alive here. And what's interesting is, you know, fiscal hawks will look at, at numbers like that and, you know, be terrified, except that right now we are still in the midst of the crisis. Congress has stalled on the next uh, round of, of aid, and you run this risk of having a, a recession that turns into a depression if you don't, uh, you don't respond adequately, right? So you're spending all this money here. It just shows you, it just shows you how difficult a moment it is um, in, in the American economy with, with this pandemic. And, you know, look, that is an awful lot of money. Interest rates are incredibly low here, uh, but you're talking about debt the size of the, uh, overtaking the size of the economy by next year. That's certainly a milestone. It shows you, what, shows you where, where we are. It's interesting because we've got two uh, important business headlines. One is a little bit more um, newsworthy, perhaps, than the other. That is, uh, number one, you've got the initial jobless claims coming in at 881,000. And number two, uh, Mackenzie Bezos is now officially the richest woman in the world. It really shows you just the fact that during this pandemic, how vast the gap has been between the rich and the poor. And I'm really worried about what's been called the K-shaped recovery, where some people are going to do great. People with stock investments, people in housing and real estate, for example, not commercial or real estate, but housing and real estate, they're bouncing back and even profiting right now. And then other people, low-wage workers, people without wealth, without resources, those people face a pandemic economy that is scarred for the next couple of years, and they have a hard time coming back. You know, the Great Recession... You know, the Great Recession, it basically cemented some of the inequalities in the American American economy. And you run the risk that if you don't have the right kind of aid and the right kind of rescue from the Fed and from Congress, you run the risk of, you know, making income inequality worse and opportunity inequality worse in America. And that's a real moment that they have right now. By the way, they're not talking in Washington. Everyone's on recess. All right. Christine Remens, life for us there. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Facebook says it will ban new political ads on the platform in the week leading up to the U.S. presidential election. The move is a narrow response to concerns that misinformation on the site could interfere with the vote. Brian Fung joins us live now. So this is an attempt by Facebook to combat misinformation, especially because it was criticized so heavily during the 2016 election. The question is, will it be enough? That's exactly right, Zane. Uh, Facebook says it's doing its part to protect democracy here. Uh, But already its plan is raising questions about whether it's feasible. Um, Here's what the new policy says. It says, you know, Facebook won't be accepting new political ads the week before the election. Um, It says that ads can still be bought anytime before then. Um, They just won't be taking any new ads during that week leading up to election day. Any new ads bought 
uh, before the blackout begins can continue to run through that blackout period and the restrictions will lift after election day. Now, uh, it's important to point out here what Facebook isn't saying. Uh, Facebook won't be changing its rules on micro-targeting or its ability, uh, the ability of advertisers to feed highly specific and custom messages to very niche audiences. Facebook uh, is also not requiring truthfulness in political advertising still, meaning politicians can continue to lie, which is something that uh, civil rights groups have um, argued strongly should not be allowed to happen on Facebook. And, uh, you know, the policy that's being rolled out uh, today doesn't continue past Election Day. So um, after Election Day ends, political advertisers will again be allowed to take out new advertisements on Facebook. Uh, the company says it'll label posts that seek to delegitimize the results or that, um, you know, posts from politicians that uh, try to claim victory in the election before official results are released, but it's unclear if that policy will also extend to ads. So all of this, uh, you know, building up to many, many questions about how Facebook will implement um, this new policy, even as it uh, tries to assure the public that it's ready for election day, Zane. All right, Brian Fung, life for us there. Thank you so much. The U.S. Federal Health Agency is telling states to get ready to begin distributing potential coronavirus vaccines as soon as late October. The CDC advised who should get the treatment first, prioritizing health care uh, and essential workers. CNN's senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins us live now. So it's important to note that this does not necessarily mean that a vaccine is going to be ready by then. It's just that they're trying to make sure that they lay out the groundwork so that in case it, one is ready, the distribution pipelines are already available. Exactly. That's right. I mean, saying, hey, guys, be ready by early November to distribute this vaccine does not mean there will be vaccine. You know, in any good preparedness plan, you want everybody, every little link in the chain to be ready earlier rather than later. So what the CDC is saying is that limited supplies may be available by early November. You know, we don't know exactly what that means, you know, but for sure we have seen a CDC, a U.S. Centers for Disease Control, that it seems to be more under the control of Washington, of the central authority, than in previous administrations. Zane? And just in terms of who gets priority if a vaccine was to become available, uh, they've mentioned that it would be healthcare workers and other essential workers. But beyond that core particular group, who gets the vaccine beyond that? Right. So let's talk about the priority for whenever a vaccine is available, whether it's in two months or six months. Let's take a look. So the highest priority, as you talked about a little bit, would be first responders and also seniors in nursing homes. These are just examples. There are other people in this category, all of these categories as well. Medium priority would be Americans with underlying conditions, health conditions that would make them vulnerable to getting very sick or dying from COVID and prisoners and others who are living in congregate settings very close together. Lower priority would be young adults and children. And I think it's clear, you know, this is a, this is a large country. They're not, you're not going to be able to distribute vaccine to everybody all at one time. It could take quite a while to work through these groups from high to medium to low. All right, uh, Elizabeth Cohen, live for us there. Thank you so much. Appreciate Thanks. it. Tensions rise again between India and China. India bans nearly 120 additional Chinese mobile apps, citing national security concerns. The latest rounds of banning target apps from some major Chinese companies, including Baidu, Alipay and Tencent as well. Vedika Sud 
is live for us in New Delhi with more. So this is India's way of striking back at China. Will it be effective? Well, perhaps that is what India is planning to do, you know, just economically distance itself from another Asian giant, China. But ever since June, when that skirmish happened at the India-China border, at the line of actual control zone, you've seen over 200 apps which are affiliated with Chinese investors or companies being banned. Now, the latest was on Wednesday when 118 apps were banned and the Indian government came out to say that uh, these apps have been engaging in activities activities which are prejudicial to India's sovereignty, safety, as well as defense, after which you've had the Chinese authorities come out today and say, you know what, this is not only going to harm investors and companies from China, but the users in India as well. A quick word on the mobile app PUBG, which was also banned yesterday. Now, just sample this. This mobile app PUBG had the highest number of users. It was a top game rather all of last year in India. In the first six months of this year, it's had more than 54 million downloads and the consumer spending has been over $15.2 million. So that's quite a lot. And now you have China coming out and saying that this is going to even harm the environment of investment in India and open economies there. And Vedika, just pivoting slightly, we know that uh, uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, his Twitter account was hacked. What more do we know about that? Well, yes, that did happen this morning, rather early morning. The Indian government hasn't come out with a statement yet. But what we do know is that this was not his personal account. That is more than 61 million followers. But this is another account, which is 2.5 million followers and is associated with his personal website. Twitter has come out with a statement where they have said that he the, the district handle of the prime minister was we've taken all measures to keep it safe now and an investigation is underway to understand how that really happened now remember Zane, this comes about a month after or rather a month more than uh, earlier when uh, there were other accounts hacked uh, after a huge hack took place where prominent personalities like obama biden and musk also had their accounts compromised now Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi is joining that list, Zin. Uh, but as you mentioned, there will be an investigation as to what actually happened with his Twitter account. Uh, Vedika yes. Sud, live for us there. Thank you so much. OK, so these are the stories making headlines around the world. Typhoon Maysak slammed into South Korea's southern coast early Thursday morning, knocking down power lines and flooding streets. At least one person is reported dead. Heavy winds and rain lashed the peninsula even as damage from a previous typhoon was still being repaired. A third powerful storm in the region is now gathering strength off the Korean coast. And Russia says there is no reason to blame the Kremlin for what happened to opposition leader Alexei Navalny. German Chancellor Angela Merkel says testing proves he was poisoned by a Novichok nerve agent. She's consulting with allies and says their response will depend on whether Russia cooperates with the investigation. In the Americas, the coronavirus has infected 13.5 million people, and the region's public health agency says 570,000 of them are actually healthcare workers. In Brazil, South America's hardest hit, numbers are stabilizing, but the country is still edging towards 4 million cases. CNN's Patrick Ottman takes a closer look at one reason the region's outbreak has gotten so out of control. Nearly 570,000 healthcare workers in the Americas have fallen ill with the coronavirus. 
according to the director of the Pan American Health Organization, one in seven of those healthcare workers are in the United States and Mexico, and a staggering 270,000 Brazilian healthcare workers have fallen ill with the coronavirus on Wednesday. She said that as the outbreak swept into many of countries in the Americas, that just too many doctors did not have access to the proper protective equipment, or they had to reuse things like masks and gowns because they just did not have enough of them. So she painted a picture of healthcare workers that were essentially left to themselves to defend uh, themselves from this virus as they were treating uh, this barrage of people who were coming into the hospitals. She said that the rate of infection seems to have stabilized in the U.S. and in Brazil, but those two countries still see uh, more deaths uh, related to the coronavirus than any other country in the world. Other countries in the Americas uh, as well uh, seem to have flattened the curve, like in Chile and in Uruguay. But in the Caribbean, the country of the Bahamas has seen a surge in cases. More than half the cases the Bahamas has, she said, uh, they have uh, reported in the last two weeks. She also called on the United States to take part in an initiative that would share a potential vaccine with poorer countries, give those countries that might not be able to vaccine, develop a vaccine on their own or buy a vaccine, give them access to a potentially life-saving vaccine. More than 170 other countries have done so, she said. But so far, at this point, the United States has re- refused to commit to an initiative to share a potential coronavirus vaccine. Patrick Gottman, CNN Havana. Multiple reports say that football superstar Neymar is one of three Paris Saint-Germain players to test positive for COVID-19. French media report that all three tested positive after returning from vacation on the Spanish island of Ibiza. PSG says all players and staff will be tested in the coming days. Coming up on First Move, breaking up is hard to do, but for Jeff Bezos's ex, Mackenzie Scott, it's made her the world's richest woman. We'll have more on that. Plus, making the U.S. Open fun without the fans. Interesting ideas from IBM for a tennis tournament without spectators. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks remain on track for a mostly lower open this Thursday. Blue chips, however, are trying to move higher. The Dow begins a session above 29,000 for the first time since February. Nasdaq stocks are under the most pressure pre-market with Apple and Tesla set to pull back further from records. Before the bell, the U.S. reported that an additional 881,000 Americans filed for first-time claims last week, the first drop below 1 million since early August. This comes after a weaker-than-expected read on private sector jobs growth yesterday. The all-encompassing U.S. jobs report will be released tomorrow. Also before the bell, the U.S. are reporting that the trade gap surged by more than 18 percent in July, thanks to an almost 11 percent rise in imports. Seth Harris joins us live now. He's the former acting U.S. Secretary of Labor under President uh, Obama. Thank you so much for being with us. So let's just talk about these initial jobless claims coming in at 881,000 up this week. Um, how do you interpret these numbers? Obviously, they were seasonally adjusted, but they do still represent a decline uh, technically compared to last week. Well, only technically, though, Zane. Um, in reality, the actual number of claims filed increased slightly. Um, and overall, about 1.6 million American workers filed for some kind of unemployment benefits last week. 
The more troubling number inside this report that we got from the Labor Department today is that 29.2 million Americans are receiving some kind of unemployment benefit. That's about one in five American workers. So we are still in a very, very, very deep economic hole in the United States. Workers are struggling to crawl out of it. They are not succeeding because they're not getting the help they need from their federal government. Right, because of the stimulus uh, bill not yet being passed. So 29.2 million Americans needing help, needing some form of assistance. Um, Just walk us through where you stand on just how this administration has handled this pandemic, especially from a labor market perspective. Uh, The Trump administration has been uh, catastrophically incompetent at managing the pandemic. Um, We have had... um, flare-ups around the country because they do not have a comprehensive national strategy. They don't have a national testing and contact tracing strategy. They don't have a national uh, personal protective equipment strategy so that our frontline workers and others who are going back to work can be safe. And the pandemic is continuing to kick around the United States. We're losing a thousand people to pandemic coronavirus deaths Uh, almost every day now. Um, People are scared. They're not willing to interact with one another. Different parts of the country are shutting down and reopening. And there's just not regular ability to engage in commerce with one another. And as a consequence of that, the economy is in terrible, terrible trouble. Uh, You know, the stock market is booming, but workers are suffering. It's sort of a a K-shaped recovery. The wealthy are getting wealthier. Working people are struggling and declining and losing their wealth because the Trump administration simply has no plan, absolutely no plan, either for the pandemic or for the economy. And so, I mean, the one plan that President Trump does have, just if you're using his words, if you're you're judging by his words, is that if he is reelected, he says that he will create 10 million jobs in the first 10 months. How realistic is that, do you think? It's definitely not going to happen if President Trump is reelected. He has no strategy. He has no uh, thought behind that plan. It's just, as has often been the case with the Trump administration, sort of throwing numbers at the wall to see if they can get people to buy into them. Uh, It's a marketing plan. It's not an economic plan. And so what we really need to do is to think about what is going to be required once we are able to get the pandemic under control, what's going to be required to rebuild the American economy. We're going to need an aggressive investment in infrastructure. We're going to need to make uh, a climate change investment so that the economy can shift to a lower carbon footprint. We're going to need big investments in education, big investments in the caring economy, taking care of elders and younger people so that we can live liberate more people, particularly women, to get into the workforce. That's the kind of aggressive national plan that we need to have. But simply throwing out numbers and making a bunch of empty promises that are not going to be kept, which is this administration's strategy, is not going to work to actually help working people. You talked about just the importance of the stimulus bill, just because, you know, 29 million Americans are in dire dire straits now and need help. What is the most important area which that money should be spent in order to get people either help working families or get them back uh, into the labor force? Is it the unemployment insurance that $600 a week might be coming in from the federal government at slightly less? Or is it the small business PPP? What are your thoughts? Um, 
this problem is so gigantic that there's no one silver bullet, but no question about it, restoring the $600 supplemental unemployment benefit is critically important. Uh, when uh, President Trump and Senate Republicans allowed that money to expire, they pulled billions of dollars out of the economy every week. But we also need to provide additional loan support to true small businesses, not the cronies and friends of people in the Trump administration. But we need to help small businesses bridge this gap until they're able to get back to work. We also need to look at some of the industries that are in a grave risk of collapsing in the United States. The airline industry is talking about tens of thousands of layoffs at the end of September. Their unions have been working with them to try to get Congress to focus on the kind of investments they need to make in the airline industry and other industries that are at risk of collapse. And most important, let me just say, I, want, I don't want to leave this out because this is very important. State and local governments need the support of the federal government. State and local governments cannot borrow to fill in a deficit in their spending. So they're having to dramatically cut services. They're laying off large numbers of people, more than a million and a half over the last several months. That is going to slow our economic recovery, and it's going to deprive people in our communities of the support that they need. So there's a long list of things we need to get engaged on at the federal level. Level. But mm -hmm. let me just say, Congress has failed because Senate Republicans and the White House are unwilling to meet the House Democrats halfway. Speaker Pelosi has said, we'll, we'll agree to cut our request. You need to come up a little bit in your request. That's how bargaining works. But apparently the world great, world's greatest deal maker is not able to make a deal in this space. Well, then, then how much money do you think is needed? Because Senate Republicans are saying that they're willing to spend a trillion dollars this time around. Obviously, the Democrats want more than that. But what do you think it's going to really take to get the, the economy, especially the labor market, back on track? I strongly prefer the House Democrats Heroes Act, which would have invested $3.4 trillion uh, in the economy. That is the size of problem that we are encountering right now. Um, you know, this is a $21 trillion economy. And we have months and months and months of depressed economic activity, and we have huge needs. There are millions of Americans who are food insecure. We have schools that want to be open but safe. We have workplaces that want to be open but safe. We have 29.2 million people who are out of jobs and need to be able to support their families because there are no jobs for them to find. And so uh, we, we need to do a lot more, not a lot less. So negotiating down from a trillion dollars, which is apparently what Senate Republicans are doing, they've gone down from a trillion dollars to a skinny, what they call a skinny bill of $500 billion. Now, in the real world, that's a lot of money. But in an economy the size of the United States, that's just a pittance. And it's not going to get us through even a, for a few weeks. We need a big, bold, courageous investment from people who put the country first. All right. We hope that both sides are able to come to an agreement soon because a lot of people's families and, and livelihoods are at stake, especially uh, minorities, working poor, people of color. Uh, Seth Harris, former acting U.S. Secretary of Labor under President Obama. Thank you so much for being with us. Right, you're watching First Move. The market open is up next. All right, welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are open for trade this Thursday, and as expected, we've got a mostly lower open. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq are pulling back from record highs. The Nasdaq back below 12,000 again after crossing that milestone yesterday. All this following news that an additional 80, 881,000 Americans filed for first-time jobless claims last week. 
more than 29 million Americans are still receiving some kind of jobless assistance. Contrasting fortunes with some of the richest people on the planet right now, shares in Elon Musk's Tesla selling off after hitting a record high uh, on Monday, while Jeff Bezos' ex-wife Mackenzie Scott is now the world's richest woman following their divorce settlement. Pulling apart these two stories is Paul LaMonica, uh, who's joining us live now. So, Paul, let's start with Tesla. Tesla's stock uh, price is down right now, partly because one of the largest outside shareholders is actually cutting their value. Why is that? Yeah, the uh, company Bailey Gifford that owns a significant stake in Tesla, simply put, they've had to trim their exposure to the stock because of the stunning run that Tesla has had before its stock split. It just got to be too large of a position, so they were forced to really trim their stake. They're not necessarily bearish on Tesla, but I think this is going to be interesting to watch, Shane, because there could be other large institutional shareholders that may not necessarily decide that all of a sudden they think Tesla is doomed to fail and is going to have this big drop, but that they need to just pair their positions back just for portfolio management. You don't want to have one stock have an outsized percentage. And I think that, will, that could be one thing that's going on with Tesla because, again, this stock is still up substantially this year. Um, and, and just pivoting slightly, Mackenzie Bessos, the I should say Mackenzie Scott, technically, um, yeah. the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos, now the richest woman in the world. And I was just speaking to my last guest just about how much this has really highlighted the, the, the gap between the haves and the have-nots in, in this pandemic. Yeah, it, it clearly does highlight that, uh, you know, clearly you have uh, so many mega billionaires either through uh, you know, uh, self-started companies like Jeff Bezos with Amazon and now Mackenzie Scott through their divorce settlement. She is a significant shareholder in Amazon as well, and that is why her wealth is so high. But then obviously you've got you know, Bill Gates, one of the most wealthy people in the world, self-made through Microsoft. But it's interesting, you know, uh, you know, Mackenzie Scott, she left over the heiress, the granddaughter of the founder of L'Oreal. So there's a combination of self-made billionaires as well as people who have inherited this wealth. There are a lot of heirs of Sam Walton, for example, that are on the billionaires list, uh, you know, the founder of Walmart. All right, Paul and Monica, live for us. Thank you so much for breaking that down. All right, now to the latest on the Alexei Navalny case. Germany says the Russian opposition politician was poisoned and Chancellor Merkel says any response is dependent on Russian cooperation in the investigation. Senior German politicians are putting pressure on Ms. Merkel to punish Moscow by halting a gas pipeline project between Russia and Germany. John Defterius joins us live now. So, uh, John, this project has clearly been in the works for nearly a decade. You've got Gazprom as the main shareholder. Does it call into question now uh, Russian-German ties? Well, let's put it this way, uh, Zane. It certainly puts uh, Angela Merkel in a very tough spot. Uh, on one side, she's uh, taking a hard line suggesting that Navalny was a victim of a murder attempt. And on the other time, saying, uh, basically, we will need more Russian gas in, in the future. This is a, a huge project, uh, $11 billion pipeline that is nearly done. The Merkham port there is almost no man's land because of the situation we have right now because it's not getting completed. But the Nord Stream project overall and Nord Stream 1 predated Angela Merkel. It was the previous chancellor, Gerhard Schroeder, who signed it right before leaving uh, as chancellor in 2005. Uh, he remains very close to Russia and, in fact, the chairman of the shareholders committee for Nord Stream. 
So German politicians are su suggesting right now, this can't be kind of a war of words by Angela Merkel, but tough action, even halting the pipeline, uh, as you suggested here. But I have to say, I find it very difficult to see that happening. Uh, number one, there are a number of German partners involved in the pipeline, and perhaps more importantly, because of Angela Merkel's energy policy, uh, phasing out of nuclear power back in 2011, and actually passing a bill this summer in July to phase out of coal over the next 20 years, that dependency on Nord Stream 2 will grow over time, not diminish, because natural gas is much cleaner burning in this energy transition. And, and actually, this is the same pipeline that Donald Trump has uh, slapped sanctions on as well. So doesn't that put Chancellor Angela Merkel in a, in a bit more of a bind as well? Yeah, it's almost like uh, Donald Trump gets to say to Mrs. Merkel, I told you so, right? Uh, the sanctions started at the end of 2019, and I see that they've actually added another layer to them. Uh, in fact, hitting those contractors at the Merkin port uh, in the Baltic Sea. And, and then we even have a case now where three Republican senators, led by Ted Cruz from the oil and gas producing state of Texas, have written a letter saying that the Nord Stream 2 will threaten Europe's energy independence and security in the future, which is kind of hard to, to see, saying overly dependent on Russia, even though there's supplies now coming from Southern Europe. Number two, it actually will threaten U.S. national security. I, I think it's worth noting that there's two large export terminals that are getting finalized in the United States. One is already done to try to ship LNG to Europe, and this is the nasty game of geopolitics of energy. But nevertheless, because of the Navalny case, Angela Merkel needs to now try to balance both priorities uh, in the future. John Defterios, live for us. Thank you. All right. After the break, making tennis great again. How IBM is overcoming one big problem at the U.S. Open, the lack of spectators. The sound of silence at the U.S. Open this year, where coronavirus means that fans won't be seen packing the stands in New York. IBM, the digital partner of the United States Tennis Association, is getting creative to raise the excitement. It's using the power of its Watson supercomputer to encourage fans to debate some of the sport's most contested questions, such as who are the most influential players in history, for example. And inside the stadium, IBM is using AI to recreate crowd sounds for the production teams based on similar play from last year. Rob Thomas is a senior vice president for IBM's cloud and data platform. He joins us live now. So, Rob, thank you so much for being with us. Just, just walk us through how, you know, you're bridging the gap between technology and sports and, and really what the experience will be like for spectators and fans this year. Thank you, Zane. It's great to be here. And we are really excited to be using Watson AI to create a fantastic fan experience for everybody that wants to enjoy the US Open but can't do that in person this year. And as you think about as we go forward, this probably sets a new standard for even once we're back in stadiums, how you can combine digital experiences with physical experiences to really make a great environment for sports fans using Watson AI in this case some of the challenges to collecting this much data because you've had to really study um, different types of sounds in different type of uh, spaces indoor etc or outdoor rather etc and, and just walk us through the challenges to really collecting that much data sports are like business in that most of the data that's valuable is actually encoded in language and text so 
Watson has been studying the history of the U.S. Open going back as far as we have written records. And now with open questions with Watson, we've created this AI debating that anybody can go into usopen.org slash open questions and debate who's the greatest tennis player of all time. Or the most popular one today is, is Serena Williams the best women's player? You can do that because Watson studied all the language, all the documents, and has a really great understanding of the history of tennis and can start to think about making predictions going forward. And this is what we're doing in businesses around the world today. So how going forward will something like this revolutionize sports completely, do you think? Let's say, and you mentioned that obviously even after things go back to normal, that this will really change things. How will it change things 10, 30, 40 years from now? The experience that we've built is a online offline experience, meaning you can be watching tennis on a device or hopefully in, in person in the future, but then you can do it on a smartphone. You can engage in real time in what you're seeing in a match, whether that's in the form of debate or looking at the insights on the match from Watson. It's really about changing the overall way that you experience the event, which we think is fantastic. And then you take this forward to how would a business do this? It's companies like PayPal that are using Watson in the same way to change how they interact with customers. So it's all about physical and digital converging, which is something we've all been forced to do as we've dealt with the current pandemic. And how have you managed to pull this off just so quickly? I mean, it was only, I think it was in June, where it was decided that the US Open would still continue without spectators. So you've only essentially had 12 weeks to come up with this. How have you done it so quickly? This is the wonders of modern technology. We've made Watson incredibly easy for any business user or developer to build something, in some cases in 24 hours. And many of the organizations that we helped start to support citizens during the pandemic, they got Watson Assistant up and running in 24, 48 hours. This is the modern uh, modern technology. You can build things really fast and build a great experience, and then they get better over time. So as we fed it more data about the US Open, Watson knew more and more, and that's why you're seeing some of the great debates that are happening right now out on usopen.org. You know, even though all of this data is really working to enhance the virtual experience for fans and spectators since they can't be there in person, it's, it's really hard to capture the moments that are really culturally significant. For example, you've got uh, Naomi Osaka basically protesting Black Lives Matter. She's wearing various masks. Um, there she is wearing Elijah McLean's mask there. How do you, how do you bring that to the fans? How do you bring those, those really key cultural moments to fans? It really starts with engagement. And that's why we started down the path of this debating system is if it's just you're delivering information to the fans, that's not engagement. Engagement is when the fans can ask questions, give a point of view, get a response. So it's all about two-way communication. That's what I think is critical to creating this type of an environment. And we've seen this grow. So we went live on Monday. Now we have three times the participation that we had on Monday. And so it starts to build on itself and it's all about engagement. So I would encourage anybody to go out there, ask a question, see the kind of response you get. To your point on Osaka, somebody can go ask a question about that and see, see how that engages the whole community. All right, Rob Thomas, Senior Vice President at IBM. Thank you so much. All right, still to come here on First Move, inspired by Burnout, the founder of shoe company Tom's has a new business and it's focused on mental health.
Preventing burnout is key to mental health, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic. The founder of shoe company Tom's believes healthy habits build resilience, so much so that he's launched a business based on the philosophy. His 10-step program aims to inspire small monthly changes to everyday routines, which is, his said, he says will make a big difference. Joining me now is Blake Mykoski, founder of Tom's and Made For. Um, so, uh, Blake, thank you so much for being with us. We'll talk about what's in the Made For and what you get in those kits in just a moment. But I first want to ask you, because, you know, you're all about using business for good, using business for positive change in the world. Um, for potential clients out there for your Made For company, how do you function with int- intentionality at a time like this of just so much uncertainty? Yeah, I think it's amazing the timing of this pandemic. You know, we launched Made For on March 4th, just on the eve of it really hitting, uh, I know, our soil here in the United States. And what we found with the Made For members that are using the program is it really helps remove some of that uncertainty we all feel that creates a lot of anxiety and stress during this pandemic, during this time of sheltering in place. And so it was a very fortuitous and amazing timing that we worked on this program for two and a half years and it was set to launch just before the pandemic came. Um, so what do people get in these made for kits and how did you decide what would be in them? Sure. So uh, my partner, Pat Dossett, and I worked with a leading team of scientists for about a year and a half to identify the 10 habits and practices that have the biggest impact on people's lives. These are habits and practices that are very easy to learn, but people find are very hard to sustain. So with Made For, what we do is we send you a kit each month and it focuses on one new habit, um, something um, very easy to learn, um, but once you integrate it in your life has a huge effect. And beyond and in the kit, there's a tool that helps you learn the new habit, kind of all the science that we've learned broken down into a very easy to read, like 20 minute chapter, um, and then a challenge to help keep you accountable as you learn this new habit during the month. And that comes to you each month and each month you get to focus on a new one until you complete the program after 10 months. See, I, f- I find this fascinating because I'm, I'm definitely into wellness, but um, you know, just, just looking specifically at one of, just so you can give an example, at one of those areas, I think that Gratitude, for example, should actually be a way of life, not just sort of listing five things that you're grateful for once a day, but actually a way of life. I think it can completely change anybody's life. Um, How do you get somebody who's not familiar with gratitude? What tools can they use to incorporate it into everything they do? Sure. I'm so glad you asked specifically about the gratitude month, because I think it kind of shows how we are taking kind of a 360 approach to this. So a lot of people have heard of the five minute, you know, right three things you're grateful for before you go to bed at night. You know, that is one step to having more gratitude. But what we found is there's a series of events that if you do over the month that cause you to have different experiences of gratitude with people that actually kind of changes the way your brain thinks. And specifically, one of the challenges during the gratitude month is to think about a time in your life where you had something go wrong. You lost a job, uh, you know, you broke up with a boyfriend or girlfriend or got divorced or something happened that seemed really, really bad at the time. We then have you do a creative writing exercise where you write to that event and you write and thank it for what happened after. Because oftentimes what we find is something that looks really challenging and hard in the moment later allows something great to happen in your life. And so by changing the way that your brain thinks about 
challenging situations like what we're experiencing right now allows you to have more gratitude and positivity and allows you to change your mindset. So moving from this fixed mindset to a growth mindset during the time of challenge. And so during our gratitude month, we have about four different experiences that you do throughout it. Some are interacting with loved ones or people that you care deeply about, colleagues, etc. And some of it's more personal, like this writing exercise that helps you reimagine when bad things or hard things happen, how at some point you actually be grateful for the opportunity that they provide. So as a, as a, a founder of uh, multiple businesses, as an aspirational figure yourself, how have all these practices actually changed your life? Well, the thing is, is I think so many entrepreneurial ventures start with uh, personal experience. And this was very much for me. You know, I sold Tom's. I had, you know, had all the success and, and helped so many people and was, you know, thinking I should just feel great every day. And, you know, uh, you know, several months later, I realized I wasn't feeling great every day. And what I realized is I was focusing on all these external accomplishments and not these internal practices I could do to really take control of my well-being. So this really started as a personal research project myself so that I could feel better because I was waking up, you know, not feeling the same energy. I was mildly depressed. I was really having a hard time at a time in my life when I thought everything should be perfect. And I felt a lot of kind of personal shame around that. And as I started to explore other people who were also challenged in this way, I realized that the people who were truly thriving weren't looking outside themselves, but inside themselves. And they were doing these habits that scientifically have been proven to change the very important chemical levels that increase your well-being. Yeah, and thank you, by the way, for opening up uh, to us about some of the harder times in your life. I'm sure a lot of people sure. dealing with this pandemic can relate to that. Um, but Blake Mykoski, we have Absolutely. to leave it there. We've run out, we've run out of time, sadly. Uh, founder of Tom's oh. and Made For. Thank you. All right, that's it for the show. I'm Zane Asher. Thank you so much for watching. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.